A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This podcast explores themes of murder and rape. Listener discretion is advised. Why are all these murders here? Why? Well, one reason is that we have a homicidal maniac who's been running around and we know he's killed 10 people. He killed a woman for no reason whatsoever. He just wanted to look and see what was inside her body. I didn't understand how this all could have happened. And I didn't understand how someone could do this. I don't think he knows who Jesus is. From 1972 to 1973, locals in Santa Cruz, California, were terrorized by not one, but two serial killers. Their names were Edmund Kemper and Herbert Mullen. They operated independently and over an 11-month period claimed the lives of 21 individuals. Young children, teenagers, female hitchhikers, and even a priest was slain. No one was safe. I'm Dr. Michelle Ward, and this is Mind of a Monster, the co-ed killer and Herbert Mullen. Episode 6, Seeking Justice. Proceedings against Herbert William Mullen begin in Santa Cruz at the end of July 1973. He is initially charged with 10 counts of murder. Jim and Joan Genera, Kathy Francis and her sons David and Damon, the four teenage campers, David Allen Oliker, Robert Michael Spector, Brian Scott Card, and Mark John Drabelbus, and finally Fred Perez. Then, a few months later, he's charged with an 11th homicide, Father Henry Tomei's murder in the adjoining Santa Clara County. During proceedings, Mullen also confesses to murdering the homeless man, Lawrence White. It takes his known tally to 12, 
but there is one more confession still to come. Terry Medina was a detective at the sheriff's office and was responsible for escorting Mullen during the trial. Herbert William Mullen, he definitely had mental issues. I mean, he had the classical effect that psychiatrists talk about. He had the stare. You would look into his eyes and it's not like looking into your eyes or my eyes. You know that there's something not right there. Not talkative at all. The only thing that ever happened in transporting Mullen, me and the other guy that was driving, we talked about the number of people that Mullen was charged with. I think it was 12. And so Mullen in the back seat goes, 13. Wait, what? And, you know, that was my reaction. Exactly what you did. Like, what? What the hell? You said 13? There's another body? That 13th body was Mary Gullifoyle. We had never connected those bones to any of this. So I, I came back and got a hold of Peter Chang right away, and I said, hey, there's another one. Because by then they had charged him with 12 murders. You're like, no, 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 hold up. We got one more. You got to remember the defense here for Mullen is an insanity defense. And back then it was the McNaughton rule was the definition of criminal insanity. And the defense hired Donald Lunday, who was this very famous Stanford psychiatrist. I want to share with you an extract from Donald T. Lundy's exclusive audio tapes with Herbert Mullen before the killer was due to be tried for his crimes. It's actually quite jarring to hear how familiar Mullen is with the process of psychoanalysis. I appreciate your situation. You know, you think you, you think that you have me going, you know. Well, I got him talking now, you know. This is your, this is your position, you know. This is all I wanted to do. Uh, this is, I'm trying to mimic your subconscious voice, you know, as it talks to itself. The only thing I want to do uh, is to get Herbert Mullen to uh, continue talking, explaining his mind, so that I can have material that I can use, you know, to uh, psychoanalyze. Uh, find out exactly how he works. That's very good. That's pretty, uh, that's very close to the truth. Yes. Um, are you also getting the vibrations in terms of what I think of what you said? The mountain. Well, no, I'd like to hear it. Yeah. What I think, and I will tell you fairly bluntly, because you need, it's better that you should hear this now than you know, in court where it might come as a surprise. I think that if you get up, or if I get up, uh, your attorney gets up in court and says <clears throat> that you killed people in order to prevent earthquakes, the judge is going to think you're crazy. What this tape confirms to me is that Mullen is being made very aware that his team is going to go down the insanity route. After so many months of grief and fear, I want to know what those in Santa Cruz made of Herbert Mullen when he was in court. I turned to Tom Honig, who was a reporter at the Santa Cruz Sentinel and attended the trial throughout. Tuesday afternoon, August 14th, 1972. 
It was not unlike a tension-packed television drama with the mass murder defendant on the witness stand and the ailing district attorney, recently released from hospital and confined to a wheelchair, making his first appearance back in court. Such was the scene this morning at the Herbert William Mullen murder trial as the defendant took the stand to answer defense attorney Jim Jackson's question, why did you kill 13 people, Herb? What was your impression of him? That he was completely crazy. I don't think he knew right from wrong. I think it was a textbook insanity trial. During the trial, they went into a lot of detail about his philosophy of small disasters negating big disasters. I don't know whether he believed that or what he believed. And there was absolutely no reason for him to shoot Fred Perez that morning. There just was no reason at all. And there was no reason for any of his other killings. Although he did murder a guy that he had been to high school with and had grown up with, who he felt had led him to a life of drugs and he was getting back at him. But he killed a woman named Mary Guilfoyle for no reason whatsoever. He just wanted to look and see what was inside her body. Also at the trial was Donald T. Lundy's eldest son, Monty, who was just a child when Mullen's trial took place. I went to Mullen's trial for one day. That was a a father-son journey to Santa Cruz. So we went to the trial and he sat me in the courtroom with the courtroom artist. And so I sat watching him do the sketches while my dad testified. What was your impression of him? I went there the day that my dad was the expert witness. And so I did watch Mullen and his reactions. He was not really very reactive. He listened to my dad's testimony. He didn't react much from what I could tell. It was interesting because it was my first time in a courtroom and in a major case like this, there's formalities and there's a process and there's a lot of people (laughs) and a lot of attorneys. I think I was 13 at the time, so it was a bit overwhelming. But it was also fascinating to just be in that kind of an environment, seeing how everything played out, seeing my dad on the stand, watching him be cross-examined and so on and so forth. He was very calm through the whole thing. Nobody could really ruffle his feathers. He was very able to express his opinions in a very clear fashion. And having a photographic memory made it easy for him to call up certain excerpts and whatever. He was more than capable of expressing his ultimate opinion of Mullen and his condition during these crimes. Law enforcement was worried, as Terry Medina explains. I'm going to be totally honest with you. I'm listening to all the defense expert witnesses. I'm telling Peter Chang, the prosecutor, I go, geez, we're not going to win this case. This guy is, he's nuts. For those following the proceedings, the stakes are incredibly high. Will he be found guilty, or will his insanity plea succeed? The verdict comes in. The insanity plea fails. He's found guilty of first-degree murder in the cases of Jim Genera and Kathy Francis, and second-degree murder for Jim's wife, Joan, Kathy's two sons, David and Damon, teenage campers David Allen Oliker, Robert Michael Spector, Brian Scott Card, and Mark John Drabelbus as well as Father Henry Tomei and his final victim, Fred Perez. Despite confessing to their murders, Mullen is never tried for killing Mary Guilfoyle and Lawrence White. Tom Honig has thoughts about why the insanity plea failed. I think in the case of Herbert Mullen, in my opinion, he should have been judged not guilty by reason of insanity, but I can understand the court 
or the jury, once they understood that, that could, he could get out someday, didn't want that to happen. So they found a reason to convict him. Yeah, I see that still happening today. Even though I didn't agree with the verdict, I was kind of glad it happened that way. You don't want him out in public. You want the public protected. And I don't see in, in either case that there's anything that rehabilitation will do for either one of them. I'd argue that you're right in these cases. I'm also a jury consultant in my spare time, and I've seen jurors really wrestle with that. That's right. And the DA in that case did a good job of pointing out he did do a couple things to avoid being detected. He had a serial number on a gun that he erased. There's evidence there that he must have known what he was doing was wrong if he erased the serial number off the gun. So there, there was some evidence that he did know right, right and wrong. While Mullen's trial wraps up, proceedings against Ed Kemper, the self-proclaimed co-ed killer, are in full swing. Once again, Terry Medina is tasked with escorting the offender during proceedings. So Kemper, is, he was a personality. He was articulate. He was a talker. I mean, the guy had an affable personality. People talked to him. People liked him. He was just an interesting guy, really. Very talkative. Tom Honig followed Kemper's proceedings, too, and recalls writing about it at the time. Thursday afternoon, June 28, 1973. Kemper trial set for October 15th. Accused murderer Edmund Emil Kemper has pleaded innocent to eight counts of murder and is scheduled for a jury trial October 15th. After entering the plea in Santa Cruz Superior Court today, defense attorney Jim Jackson asked the court to reserve his client's right to plead innocent by reason of insanity at a later date. What was Kemper like during his trial? It was kind of bizarre. You were so used to Mullen going limp in the courtroom, and Kemper was, seemed to be under control the whole time that he was in custody. A very different beast. Very different. I mean, the question has come up, were they spurring each other on? And I don't think at all they were. I don't think there was any crossover and, or jealousy or competition or anything like that. They were just so different. There may not have been any immediate rivalry, but the two serial killers certainly had become familiar with one another, even being placed next to each other in prison. In one audio extract from Donald T. Lundy's interview with Ed Kemper, Kemper complains about the special treatment he perceives Mullen is getting. What's happened with Mullen here is, you know, I always take him somewhere else to do anything right. Jeff. Well, I've been seeing Mullen here, either in this room or one across the hall. We've... Has he been cooperative with that? Mullen? Yeah. With me? Yeah. yeah Very much so. Yeah. Yeah, That's I've strange. seen him. Uh... It's been before the TV was put back in. Well, I've seen him before. Years. We've been through this off and on because he had the TV problem initially, and then I talked to the uh, deputies and got it turned off for a while and then uh, back on again. Uh, no, he's been, he's been, uh, he's been a reasonably cooperative. But it didn't end there, as Emerson Murray explains. I'm almost surprised that the two of them didn't fight over credit, given how much they both wanted credit for the numbers of people they'd killed. Here's an interesting thing I found in, in documents that I believe I was given by the Santa Cruz Sheriff's Office. There were some notes found in Mullen's apartment after he was captured and on two different pieces of paper. One was like a flyer for a play. He, he had written, I am the hitchhike killer. 
and which was sort of interesting because he really had only picked up Mary Guilfoyle, and it was Edmund Kemper who, who was known as the co-ed killer and picking up hitchhikers. So it's just a sort of a weird thing. Competitive killers. I mean, it's bizarre for you and me to understand. There was more. Kemper claimed that while in neighboring prison cells, he used to throw water on Mullen when he was bad and reward Mullen's good behavior by giving him peanuts. While tensions play out behind the scenes, Ed Kemper's trial continues, and chilling details of what he did to his victims post-mortem emerge. Along with the known facts about him dismembering his victims are stories of necrophilia and cannibalism. Those present were appalled. For Hazel Bright, who was just a teenager at the time, the trial was deeply emotional. Her best friend, Aiko Koo, had been abducted and murdered by Kemper back in September 1972. Did you follow the trial? I did follow it, and I saved the newspaper articles. They're in my memory box. And I really didn't know how to process all of it. I was in a state of shock. I think being young and not able to really process all that was going on, and I really felt that was true for me. I felt incredible sadness. I mourned her loss quite a bit. And I think back when I was 15 in high school, when I learned about what happened, I remember being really sad about it, cutting out the newspaper articles, saving it, praying for her, knowing that she was in heaven, and um, just doing a lot of crying. Just, you know, you just cry yourself to sleep at night because I didn't understand how this all could have happened. And I didn't understand how someone could do this. It just was incomprehensible to me. As the verdict arrives, those in the courtroom are nervous. Surely this monster cannot slip through the cracks again. He's found guilty of first-degree murder on all counts. Yet, despite the unprecedented horror of their crimes, the death penalty was never on the table for Kemper or Mullen. I speak with former Detective Mickey Luffy. During this time, the death penalty was temporarily abolished in California. Without that as a potential deterrent, do you think violent offenders in general were becoming braver? You know, I have mixed feelings about that. I think for the most part, when people kill somebody, it is an act of opportunity. It's emotional. It's very spontaneous. I don't think that they stop to think about anything. There are some, like serial killers, that I think they're aware of the potential hazards. I know that when we brought Kemper back, for example, he knew that the death penalty was off the table. And he wanted to know if it was going to come back on the table because he wanted to take advantage of that. Wow. And I told him, I, I, there's no way I can guarantee that or even speculate on it. But so then he said, well, maybe I'll volunteer for a frontal lobotomy because he knew he was never going to get out of jail again. Both killers, Edmund Emil Kemper and Herbert William Mullen, were sentenced to life in prison. 
Coming up, I explore the impact of the killings on the community and the ultimate fate of Kemper and Mullen. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey, it's Janice from Warner Brothers Discovery. If you're looking for a little extra peace of mind, you might want to check out Simply Safe. Simply Safe was kind enough to send me a home protection system to try out, and I couldn't believe how easy it was to set up. Not only that, I'm kind of a gear nerd, and I was really impressed by how clear the camera was. I also love the smart lock keyless entry because there are a lot of things to remember each day, and my keys aren't always on that list, okay? Not only that, Simply Safe offers a 60-day money-back guarantee, and U.S. News & World Report awarded them the best home security systems of 2024. Simply Safe has given me and many of our listeners real peace of mind, and I want you to have that too. Right now, get 20% off any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com/mindofamonster. There's no safe like Simply Safe. It's 1993, 20 years after the murders, and Pastor Don Smarto is touring prisons across California for a documentary. He wants to speak with inmates who have had a religious conversion. During one visit, he happens upon a large man who the prison chaplain believes is authentic. I speak with Don about the experience. It's almost seven feet tall, 350 pounds, and he was a giant. I won't use an expletive on this podcast, but I went holy S because in my mind, I thought I have never been in front of a person that big, but he was very disarming. He was soft-spoken, he had eye contact, he had a nice little smile. 
but you understand, I don't know who this is. All I know is that the chaplain has said, uh, this man, I think he's authentic. I think he really has faith in God. And I'm just trusting the judgment of the chaplain. And then comes the moment. Right before I was gonna ask my first question where a guard leans into me and whispers into my ear. He said, do you know who this is? And I whispered back, no. And this is what he said to me. Well, that's Ed Kemper. He strangled, shot, stabbed, raped, and decapitated young girls. Well, that's just what I needed to hear. I was ready for the interview to be over because it suddenly hit me that I did know who he was in part. And this is what had happened. Before I had left home, at the time I was living in Chicago, I'd watch morning television. And there was a book by an FBI profiler named Robert Ressler. And Robert was being interviewed, and I was kind of half listening. And they asked him the question, did any criminal or serial killer ever frighten you? And Ressler's answer, as I recall, was only one. And he said, Ed Kemper. Because Ed, and this was a little phrase that Ed would use on people. He never used it on me. He would say to people to intimidate them, I could pop your head off and put it on the table before they'd get in here to rescue you. Oh my God. Wrestler believed it and suddenly it connected, Michelle, in my mind. Am I standing in front of the guy that the FBI profile was talking about? And this is what happened next. I started looking at his hands. Now, you know, when you interview someone, you're supposed to maintain eye contact. And the more my brain said, don't look at his hands, the more I did. Of course. And, and of course, now I'm processing, these were hands that had strangled people. He had a nervous habit. He was wringing his hands. It was like he was washing them. Well, that made me more nervous because it was like he was warming up his hands to strangle me. And so I'm trying to keep my cool because, you know, the interviewer always has to have control. But actually, Kemper disarmed me because after the first question, Again, he smiled, he was polite, and he would answer the question in detail. And eventually, I would say after 15, 20 minutes, I forgot that we were locked inside. When it was over, he said, can I talk to you? Now he meant apart from the interview. Well, I went in the hall and sat on the bench and we talked for an hour. Whoa. He knew I was, you could say a pastor, a minister, a chaplain. And suddenly it occurred to me that he was using me as a confessor which is a whole different thing. He started giving me details of his crimes that maybe he confessed, maybe he didn't, but he wasn't doing it in a, in a sensational way. Don Smarto visited Kemper again and then struck up a correspondence with the killer. He shares some of the letters with me. In his letters to me, he does analyze himself. I'm using my own words, but he reflects on what brought him over the brink or to the edge. He did tell me he shot his grandfather and killed him as a mercy killing. He said it was so he wouldn't have to see his wife on the floor, bleeding and dying. So, I mean, that's bizarre in itself. But many times in his letters, he would go backwards in time and one of the most chilling things he ever wrote to me was one sentence that said, if I'd killed her first, the others might have lived. He was saying to me, if I'd killed my mother first, maybe I wouldn't have killed all these other women. 
it's almost like every young girl was collateral damage. Like, okay, my hatred is fixated on my mother, but I'm going to take you out to feel better. Why don't you read for me the excerpts from the letters that mean the most to you? Sure. Uh, let me just clarify. He wanted very much to write letters to his victims' families, but there was a law in California that prevented that. Dated April 25th, 1996. I want to apologize in person, but no prosecutor will allow me that opportunity. They fear my apology will be cheap grace, using manipulative words. I would love for you to read for me what he wrote to you about Herbert Mullen, May 9th, 1995. There are courteous guards here, and system marionettes, decent inmates, and deranged ones. One really got on my nerves for some time. A true psycho, Herbie Mullen. He bragged about killing a priest. Herbie is a pest, and pests require pesticides. He boasted a superior record to my tally. Really? Why are authorities convinced my number was eight? They don't know what I know. But let the judgment books be closed on numbers. Does that mean there are more victims of Ed Kemper out there? That's what I think he means. I mean, Kemper's a smart guy, and he doesn't use words lightly. And he wasn't taunting me. He was simply telling me they give all this attention to Mullen and they have a count on him. Do you think serial killers like Kemper and Mullen can be forgiven? My Christianity tells me that anybody can be forgiven, including a serial killer, which actually, I think it backs the church into a corner. It says, if you really believe people can change, then why not this category? I corresponded with him. Then I put the letters away. And, you know, for almost 20 years, I never talked about him to anybody. Really? Why was that? The main reason I didn't is because of the facial expressions I would get. Whenever I would say, well, I'm writing with a serial killer named Ed Kemper. And then they would go, well, what is he saying to you? I said, well, he was very unruly in prison. And one day he said he had uh, some kind of a, a, an experience in solitary confinement. You can call it a vision. You can call it a voice. But whatever it was, a guard told me that suddenly he changed and his behavior changed and he became mild-mannered. Now, again, he may have been faking, but my question over the years has been, to what end? If you're faking that you're now committed to God and now you're peaceful, well, he's never getting out. He's never going to get paroled. What's the point? Yeah, what's the point? I mean, in a prison, it would be just as advantageous to be predatory and steal other people's food and you know, knock them around. So I came to believe that it was genuine, personally believed that God had changed his heart. Former Santa Cruz detective Mickey Alufi had spent three days escorting Ed Kemper to Santa Cruz following the killer's confession. He has a very different take than Don Smarto. The theory is that a psychopath or a sociopath becomes so smart and they become so skilled in describing remorse and guilt and empathy but they don't actually feel it. Mm -hmm. Do you think he'd actually come to Jesus and became a remorseful person? I don't think he knows who Jesus is. I think that Kemper is a manipulator. I think he's very intelligent. He has a tendency to, especially after his conviction, he changes his story somewhat to be a little bit more bizarre every time he's talked to because that creates more media attention. He manipulates, especially the media, because he likes the attention. He sounds like a true psychopath. 
Yep. As for Herbert Mullen, for those like Emerson Murray, whose father's best friend, Jim Gennaro, was murdered by him, he's not someone who can be forgotten. For us, when we were kids, we sort of logically knew that Herbert Mullen was in prison, but he was still like this boogeyman to us. You know, he killed women, he killed children, he killed men, and he even killed priests in their own church. He was just like Michael Myers from the movie Halloween or something, but he was alive and he had killed our dad's friend. And so it was literally somebody that we would talk about under the street light on our street to creep each other out as kids. Those are the murders that are the scariest. When murders are random, they're really, really scary. Why is it important that we remember these crimes? Well, I think locally for us here in Santa Cruz, I mean, it, they left scars that we still feel today. You know, I think that people still lock their doors and still think about these kind of things. I want to know how Santa Cruz recovered from the pain and trauma of the killings. Two of Luita Spengler's friends were murdered by Ed Kemper. Did you remain in Santa Cruz after you finished school? I did. Yes, I graduated from there, I, I worked there, so I stayed there. And I went to San Jose State for a while, looking to get a master's degree in women's studies. I was battered women's shelter coordinator for a while. I was very, very active in the group Santa Cruz Women Against Rape. And that was largely motivated by my friend who had been badly beaten and raped back in Palos Verdes, and then further motivated by the murders taking place. And that anchored me to the Santa Cruz community. We had a hotline. Women would call with the names and descriptions of the men who had raped them. And we would, we would note these down and we'd post them all over town. Wow. Yes. And we would do confrontations. So if a woman knew a man who had raped her and had the address, we would get a, a large group of us together and go to his place and film him and shout at him and scream at him. Could you imagine doing that right now? No, because we would get sued. <laughs> That's right, right. But you know what? Law enforcement wasn't doing enough, so you guys had to take it into your own hands. Right. And we had a fairly supportive district attorney who actually supported getting Santa Cruz Women Against Rape funding because he said, you know, that's the only thing that's available right now. We didn't tell him about the confrontations and things like that. He probably knew they were taking place. It was very empowering. And I think that it was also very helpful, publishing these lists and posting them around town and letting men know that it wasn't like we were following the fear advice that was being broadcast at us everywhere else. What a fascinating group you were. Wow. Yes, we were a fascinating group. What would you say has been the impact of the crimes, both on the Santa Cruz community and then on you personally, Luita? I think that it, Santa Cruz lost its innocence through these crimes. It became more of a regular place in the world, just as prone to violence, hatred, women hating as any other place. In terms of its effect on me personally, it was a galvanizing moment in my life. And I've been on that trajectory ever since. It put a reality to my feminism that I've never lost. Do you ever reflect on your friendship with Rosalind Thorpe and Alice Liu? I do think about Roz, and I think about Roz every time I make a pie. 
<laughs> and I do make pies now. Since I live in Germany, I've introduced my friends here to Thanksgiving. We have a Thanksgiving, and um, it's become traditional that I always make a pie. And I make a pie for my partner's birthday every year, too, a cherry pie. Finally, I turn to Tom Honig. Do you think it's possible for a place to recover from that level of trauma? Well, it helps that Santa Cruz is such a beautiful environment and has so much going for it. We've got, what, 18 state parks in the county. We've got a long expanse of white sand beach. Wish the water was a little warmer. But life is good here. You can sail, you can surf. The community is pretty united. People here are pretty normal. Go to church, crowd the freeway in the morning. I think those are the things that build a community. But, you know, it, it's, it's been in several decades now, and it's part of the lore of, of the area. Anybody who was around in 72 and 73 has mass murder stories. Did you continue with the paper? Yes, I continued with the paper. And the reason I'm laughing is we talk about the horror of it all. But I'll say this, it was sure interesting and an intellectual challenge to cover it. Stayed at the newspaper my entire career. I became a, an editor. I ran the local news operation. I was city editor for five years in the 80s. And then in the 90s, I became top editor. And I stayed as top editor until 2007. I had a brief two-year career in public relations, which was not meant for me, or I wasn't meant for it. And so since then, I've been retired. Mostly, I'm just enjoying myself. This story, the Mullen and Kemper story, never go away. People still want to talk about it. So maybe that's my job right now, is recalling those days. When I started this investigation, I wanted to understand how two serial killers could operate in the same place at the same time. Speaking to experts and witnesses, I've uncovered an incredibly sad and disturbing story. There will always be individuals with violent tendencies, but there was something going on in Santa Cruz during the early 1970s that facilitated these killers. The culture of hitchhiking certainly granted Kemper, and on occasion Mullen, easy access to victims. I also think that by operating in tandem, the killers blurred the picture for law enforcement, making it harder to follow patterns and trails. Additionally, there were serious holes in mental health care at this point in time, which enabled both killers to slip through the cracks. Mullen was not monitored adequately, and the danger posed by his violent delusions was not picked up on by experts. And Kemper was able to play the system. He was possibly misdiagnosed as schizophrenic at a young age after he had killed his grandparents, and then he was set free when his symptoms appeared to diminish. But to me, the evidence suggests that Kemper was also a highly intelligent and manipulative psychopath. The killers are now both in their 70s. Herbert Mullen has been denied parole 11 times since 1980. He is currently incarcerated at Mule Creek State Prison, California. Ed Kemper is incarcerated at California Medical Facility and is next eligible for parole in 2024. Mind of a Monster, the co-ed killer and Herbert Mullen is produced by Arrow Media for ID. The executive producer for ID is Jessica Lowther. Arrow Media's producer is Rebecca Radil. Audio engineering by Mahoney Audio Post and Paul Bradshaw. Our production manager is Alexandra Kelly. Our production coordinator 
is Jody Tanner Wild, and our researcher is Isabel Wilson. Arrow Media's executive producer is John Owens. I'm your host, Dr. Michelle Ward. You can follow our show wherever you get your podcasts, and we'd love it if you could take a second to leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.